This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. I'd like to talk about the evolution of the notion of Sangha as it has come down to us, uh, how it has evolved uh, from what we know of the time of the Buddha into the different forms community in, in modern day practice. The word Sangha probably most literally means community, referred to the group of monks gathered around Shakyamuni. And the original Sangha was defined in two distinct ways, which still affect how we think about it today. The first had to do with the monks as disciples of Shakyamuni, and their membership in the community was all or. Uh, defined by the fact that they had come together to study with this particular teacher. And secondly, it was defined by the, the precepts, the rules for living together as monks. And those rules uh, were meant not just to... Uh, sort of keep the peace among the group, but also to in some way embody uh, the teachings of the Dharma. And to a very large extent, the lifestyle and the following of the rules uh, was synonymous with the teaching, particularly when you think of the teaching in terms of non-clinging, impermanence, the rules centered around being a home lever, having no fixed permanent abode, having no possessions, having no security uh, in the normal sense of the word, uh, not engaging in sexual or family relations, not having those kinds of uh, connections or fulfillments in one's life. All of these were ways in which one vowed to live a certain way that would both 
reflect and instill these ideas of non-clinging or impermanence. And by and large, what the Buddha originally taught was this perception of the way the world is, that nothing has any kind of fixed essential nature. All dharmas are empty. And that seeing this is the path of liberation from the attachments that bring suffering. Much of the Eightfold Path is geared towards, again, creating a life that is in accord with this realization. And only one of the aspects of that path is right concentration or meditation in a way that focuses on the emptiness of things. So much of that teaching was live a certain way in accord with a certain view of reality. Uh, I think it's only much later that all the different streams of Buddhism become, to one extent or another, technologies of uh, consciousness. Uh, And uh, you get more or less elaborate instruction about what to do in your sitting practice in your meditation, whether it involves elaborate visualizations or uh, very specific stepwise kinds of deconstruction of uh, awareness and perception or concentration practice and koans. All these things are sort of later elaborations as far as I, I know. And Buddha, of course, did not invent monasticism or this whole lifestyle. He, in some way, was attempting to reform it uh, away from uh, extreme asceticism. Uh, The notion of the middle way was something between uh, the life of a householder and the life of a uh, an ascetic uh, for whom the elimination of desire meant the mortification of the body. Uh, and so there's a move away from that as a technique to eliminate clinging. But still a kind of emphasis on the monastic life as a way to embody non-clinging. Now, the the discipleship aspect of the Sangha becomes much more prominent in uh, Chinese and Japanese Zen than it probably did after the time of the Buddha uh, in India. Uh, As far as we know, 
the Zen stories of uh, Buddha holding up a flower and transmitting the Dharma to Maha Kasyapa. Uh, you know, it's a later projection back in, uh, into the history. I don't think there's any Pali source for this this story or any of the stories of Dharma transmission early on. Uh, Buddha, you know, on his deathbed did not say, follow Mahakasyapa's teaching the way you followed mine. Uh, he said, be a lamp unto yourself. Right? Very explicitly sort of saying each, each monk had to depend on themselves and on the life of being a monk uh, to investigate this Dharma for themselves. But uh, in later times, the role of the teacher and the centrality of this teacher-student relationship uh, really overshadowed uh, the centrality of the lifestyle as the essence of what this practice was about. Now, I think that has happened to a greater and greater extent as we move away from that lifestyle into different versions of lay practice or even into the Japanese model which mixes a householder life of married priests in a temple uh, away from the... uh, homelessness, lack of possession, you know, model of uh, Southeast Asia and uh, the Nile. So the more and more the student-teacher relationship becomes the, the central factor and the Sangha becomes less and less of a community and more and more of an entourage, right? It becomes a whole group of people gathered together around the teacher and everybody is sort of looking up at the teacher and there is a much more of a um, spokes on a wheel all focused on a hub notion of what the sangha is. I don't know if any of you have had the experience of uh, sitting for any length of a time in a teacherless group, a peer sitting group. Um, a very interesting and different experience Um, and these groups are often very hard to sustain people want teachers they want an idealized figure to embody what the practice is Uh, it's hard to maintain a group of people who simply take responsibility for maintaining a schedule sitting together uh, and uh, trusting the practice itself rather than thinking in terms of uh, who is the teacher who's going to show me the way or tell me if I'm there yet. Uh, We did that, uh, some of us did that uh, years ago at uh, Nora Safran's place after we had left... uh, Edo Roshi and Bernie Glassman uh, for various reasons. We had a peer group sitting in uh, Nora's loft. And that went on for uh, 
some time quite successfully. Uh, unfortunately, then Joko showed up, you know, and, <laughs> you know, messed up the whole thing. You know, we all got focused on teachers again. I think it's, um, well, I think that's all I'm going to say about it for now. We have an open-ended study group and discussion group scheduled for this afternoon. Uh, So I'd like to see if we can uh, carry this uh, discussion forward a little bit uh, later on ourselves, again, rather than uh, my... Uh, going on and on with my ideas about Sangha. Let's see if the Sangha itself can be um, expressive about uh, what it is and um, how we deal with this, you know, dialectic between Sangha as community and Sangha as uh, discipleship. Um, I think, uh, you know, the last thing I'll say about one of the ways that it plays out here is in the um, the notion of membership. Uh, membership here sort of defined both as making a commitment, uh, largely financial in terms of dues, a commitment to supporting and being responsible for this place, literally, you know, getting the rent paid. To be a member is to say, I'll take some responsibility for keeping the door open, the doors open here, keep getting the rent paid. And secondly, membership is defined in terms of becoming my student. And that's a more ambiguous uh, uh, issue for, for most people, and I try to keep it that way. I try to get keep people... Uh, thinking in an open-ended way about what does it mean to be somebody's student? What, uh, what kind of relationship are you you entering into? So we have that dialectic between responsibility to the group and connection to the teacher. That's That defines everybody uh, here one way or another. Uh, so let's try to keep those two aspects in mind and see if we can carry the conversation uh, forward uh, at noon.